Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Julian Honkasalo for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is May 16th, 2018, and this is being recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hello. Hi. How are you? you? How are you doing today? I'm doing really good, thanks. So you said you're a little jet-lagged. Tell, tell me about how you arrived here today. Yeah, I'm a little bit jet-lagged. I uh, flew in from uh, Helsinki last night, uh, and I, I came actually to, to New York City to learn about the, the project. Wow. Um, have you, uh, what's your, have you spent time in New York City before? Yes, um, I moved to New York City in 2008. Um, I actually got a Fulbright scholarship and I came here to just do a one year as an exchange student um, in at the New School for Social Research in Philosophy. Uh, but then I applied to the PhD program and, uh, and I switched to politics, political science, and then I ended up staying altogether 10 years. Um, I graduated and uh, so my home university is the University of Helsinki, I mean gender studies there, but because of the situation with the funding, um, I was doing some work in Helsinki and then also in New York. So the last years of my stay, I was uh, living both in Finland and in the States, so sort of going back and forth. But yeah, I've been around, in, I mean, I've lived in New York City for almost 10 years. And what interested you to find out more about the New York City Trans Oral History Project? I was actually originally uh, at the beach in Brooklyn, and I saw posters of the New York City Oral History Project that somebody had printed, black and white posters. And I was like, I, I took a screenshot that was like, this looks really interesting. Um, obviously, I'm aware of the, you know, the Stonewall movement and the history of uh, not only trans history, but lesbian and gay history in the city. And so it was something that I, I, I looked up and I think they had just started that project back then. Um, and then, you know, I kept it in mind, but I didn't think about, you know, conducting interviews at that point. It was just something that I wanted to follow up on once they would actually have something, you know, published or something available online. So it was actually by accident that I found it originally. And you uh, said you had some interest in trying to think about a project like this in Finland? Yeah, yeah. I, I was, um, I've been interested, I mean, since, since my postdoctoral work uh, in Helsinki deals with the history of, so it's trans history in the Nordic context, but it's, uh, it's the history of uh, legislation, uh, how, you know, Sweden, for example, was the first country in the world in 1972 to pass a law that recognized trans as an as a legal, you know, identity group, and they passed various sets of laws to legalize gender um, transitioning. So, but then they also added a, a clause on sterilization. So, sterilization became a condition for, you know, receiving legal confirmation. So, I've been doing archival research, I've been looking into different uh, legal historical archives and then also other sources. And then the more I was doing research in it, the more I started feeling that that I want to look into how this story continues and what's going to happen once at some point 
we will have a lot of reform. You know, Sweden already had it, but in Finland we still have an, uh, a law that's uh, violating basic human rights, and we want legal reform. Uh, but at the same time, I was looking for something, um, you know, to some more stories that I could hear all the time from the trans community. So a project that would also in, in Finland record stories and live stories as they are told by members of the community them itself. Wonderful. I was thinking we could shift gears and talk about your life. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your growing up. Where Where were you born and what was your childhood like? Yeah, I was, I was born in, uh, in Helsinki, uh, which is the capital of Finland. And I grew up on a you know, countryside, about an hour's drive from Helsinki in a small, small, it's, it's basically a town. Um, we had goats and chicken and, you know, like almost like a small farm. Um, I, was, I was really happy as a kid. I was very active um, because there's so much woods lakes and you know just the environment was something that was always nature was part of always when I think about my childhood I think about the endless forests and space of just being able to move around a lot so um, yeah that was I was born in 1980 and uh, yeah my childhood was 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 very happy as, as a kid I identified I think mostly just gender neutral until the age of about six so before that when I'm thinking about my own own memory I don't think I related really to any gender it wasn't something that I was thinking about and then at the age of six I felt strongly that I was a boy uh, I wasn't assigned a boy at birth uh, you know um, but yeah that's that's and then I wanted to cut my hair short uh, my parents were supportive of me. They they wanted to give me space. They wanted to see what my own way of expressing myself would be like, how I would develop. So they weren't pushing me towards any direction. So that period from about six years until 12 was really happy. I had friends at school. Kids in my school were okay with it. They were just thinking that this kid is just different, but it's one of us. What were your parents' jobs? What how did they spend their time? Uh, my mom is a doctor, so she's a scholar in uh, medical anthropology. And my uh, dad was, uh, until he retired, uh, he was uh, in environmental policy and environmental protection in the Ministry of Environment, mostly related to reducing noise pollution. So that's where they're, my mother was doing first, uh, I mean, different kinds of research projects, but she's in the academia. So she, she has, I mean, a professor, she has a long, long uh, career in, in medical anthropology. And, yeah. Do you have a sense of why they were supportive of you when you were six to 12? That's a really good question. Um, we haven't really discussed that so much. I had a face when I was, uh, older when I mean at 16 or 17 when I was asking them about my childhood and how you know why 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 did they support me in this uh, and and they just said that that's that's how they felt that that you should bring up any child but my uh, we, we have discussed it also that there was some pressure from adults that they knew uh, pressure to you know perhaps put your kid in 
in therapy, you know, what if this is a sign of some serious personality disorder or psychosis or something like that. So now when I'm older, I've been thinking about what it was like to bring up a gender non-conforming child in an environment where there was no knowledge about this. So, I mean, both of them were highly educated. I mean, they both have academic degrees and uh, they were in the social justice movement, uh, both of them, when they were young. So I think it comes comes from there. But that's that's a really good question. But yeah, it, those are questions actually that I'm thinking about now when I'm older, you know, and there's a lot of talk about trans kids and gender non-conforming kids, kids who are still looking ways to express themselves. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about that too. How how was it back then to to raise a kid and try to uh, give give a supportive environment for 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 a child who's who's different? Do you have a sense that the movements you mentioned your parents were a part of movements that they what the relationship it was between their political practice and like gay and lesbian movements or. Uh, other sexual minorities or women's rights, like the, the sort of politics of gender besides trans issues? Well, I think definitely feminism. Mm-hmm. My uh, dad has been a spokesperson and also be, been active in gender equality and feminist uh, leftist you know, uh, social justice movements in, in Finland and my mother too. So the, the sort of leftist feminism is, I mean, definitely that's there. Um, I don't know how how much anybody talked about. I mean, I've been looking at the history of, of course, lesbian and gay history in Finland too. But it it's my understanding is that it wasn't such a big part of the the leftist movement. Uh, I mean, of course, the idea, the ethical motivation was international solidarity with other groups too than than working class uh, groups. So it was it was always I mean a peace movement and a solidarity movement. Uh, but definitely, yeah, yeah. I mean. Uh, a notion of uh, feminism and, and and specific, not just mainstream liberal gender equality, although I respect that position as well, but maybe something that we would t- today call intersectional. It, it, it was already there in the 70s uh, movement. You mentioned uh, wanting to cut your hair short and uh, knowing that you were a boy. Do you remember any conversations with your parents when you were a child around these issues? I mean, I remember that that uh, I was about six, and I, and I I was in daycare, and I became really good friends with this kid who was uh, who who was a young boy. We became really good friends, and I remember that the toys that he was playing with, I thought it was they were really really cool, and I I remember that I felt somehow very liberal liberated about the kind of games that we were playing, not just hide and seek, but all those games in one sense or the other now when i think back on it involved you know just being active you know doing things building things putting things apart <laughs> so i mean we would play with like little what are they called like gij gi joes what i don't remember what they were soldiers things like that uh, but also with um cars human figures it was just, I don't think it was, we didn't think of those toys as related to violence and militarism, obviously, but they were definitely action figures. So all those toys were people who could do something and they could change things. And yeah, so 
cutting my hair short, I mean, I just remember that it had a lot to do with the fact that I met this guy and then we became best friends and I wanted to be like him. But it was more like I think I just found a way to articulate myself that this is who I want to be. Um, of course, I mean, it must have been quite dramatic uh, for my parents too. I don't remember that there was any drama around it, but it wasn't like, okay, this is, I mean, I think we had a discussion like, what, what is this about? Like, why do you want to do it? But I was very, very strong in my posi- in, in my way of saying that this is what I want to do. And then quite soon after that, I started demanding that I want to dress, you know, I mean, they never dressed me very feminine anyway. I was, I was wearing, kids back then used more gender neutral clothing, I think. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything that was particularly, they didn't dress me in a gender neutral way, but it, it, I don't think the switch to dressing in boys clothes was that big because I was dressing, I mean, kids, boys and girls were dressing in jeans and sneakers and t-shirts anyway, so it wasn't a big deal when you were a kid. And what were your teenage years like? You said six to 12 was pretty good, <laughs> and then what happened? Uh, then it got like, yeah, then it got challenging. Uh, at some point, I mean, at the age of 12, Kids in Finland change uh, to a different school. So first you are in this like sort of elementary kind of school from the age of six to 12. And then after that, you move to a high school. And in the little countryside like town where I grew up, there was only a school for kids from six to 12. So when you wanted to continue, you had to pick between two different other towns. And I deliberately made a very dramatic choice that I want to go to a school where most of my friends didn't, they wouldn't go there. And I, I, I decided that I need to change. The social pressure was coming from the outside. I wasn't being perceived any longer the way I had been perceived. Uh, kids were growing up, you know, uh, different kind of like... It wasn't house parties. There wasn't any alcohol involved, obviously, when we were 12. But there were different kinds of, like, social things that has to do with heteronormativity. Finding, like, a guy that you like or a girl that you like. Things like that. And then the older boys were also, you know, uh, you know, making comments to me that, that you, you, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to continue like that? And... So I switched schools and I made the very dramatic decision that I was going to start trying to trying to look like uh, like a girl should look like. And in high school, I was uh, bullied. Um, these older teenage guys who were about 16 years old, they used to practice ice hockey tackles on me, like against the locker rooms. But at the same time, I did have friends. I did have my own friends. I was doing sports. So my own age group... They, they were cool with me, but it was the older guys who started getting violent. And then there was also questions like, are you a boy or a girl? And whatever you would answer to those questions, there was always, I mean, it, it, there was no way to answer that. If you said that you're a boy, then they would say, okay, we're going to strip you and see whether you're really a boy or not. And if you would say that you're a girl, then they would say, then why the fuck do you look like that? So, you know, the risk of physical violence was something that it wasn't in that the small town school where I was. It didn't happen there, but I was picking up signals that I'm, I don't feel safe. Uh, and so in high school, I think um, I've been thinking about it later. Like what goes 
in the mind of a 12 or 13 year old old kid who makes these decisions and just starts conforming to gender norms that are clearly not aligned to the way the kid has been living for a very long time and then losing all your friends starting everything new and trying to build it just to protect yourself because i mean kids kids pick up signals they are not they're pretty they can read you know signals how did you learn about gender and trans and i mean was did you have any exposure to trying to think about this stuff at all as you were growing up yeah that's i mean back then not really uh when i when i was young i i mean i remember having thoughts that i have later discovered that are thoughts that many trans persons have I, i remember having thoughts that why am i like this this is really weird like nobody else is like this but then I was sort of, I mean, it gets psychologically exhausting, so you start, you sort of just forget it, and then you go on about your daily business. And then it pops up again somewhere else, like, I'm really different, like, nobody else is like this. Um, I remember that one person who was really, <laughs> that somebody who I, I thought was really cool was Freddie Mercury. So Queen was around, and you could see a lot of, there, there were these these characters in the arts and music you know industry maybe also i don't know michael jackson to a certain extent i don't know but they were, and later rupaul <laughs> so and and also some figures in the rock music also women who were in the rock industry they were able to trans like patty smith later to trans transform norms so they were those people that i would look to but definitely freddie mercury i thought was somebody who was doing something very different i didn't know that this was called trans there was no words for it i mean i was being called when when i was being uh, bullied or harassed people would you know the boys would call me tranny but uh, nobody ever called me a faggot or a dyke so it was specifically targeted. I don't know where they picked it up, but I didn't really know, understand what it meant. I thought that they meant uh, what I thought was a transvestite, and I thought that's a man who dresses in women's clothes. And I was thinking they get it all wrong, because I'm not a man who dresses in women's clothes. Like, these guys, they mix everything up. So there wasn't any words. And I, queer became a part of my vocabulary much later, like when I was in my 20s and I was in the university. But uh, back then, I think I just picked up stuff from the music and arts industry because that's where the creative... I mean, they were like cis-heterosexual people who were transitioning, uh, I mean, transforming gender norms in in some, some ways. I mean, obviously, David Bowie was one of them too. Prince was somebody who was very interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. So you had a... You were oriented to rock music as a space yeah. of gender freedom. Yeah. Tell tell us about that. Uh, I I started listening to rock music partly because my dad was listening to a lot of uh, blues, and he he listened to a lot of seventies uh, music too, like Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and I remember asking him questions like, "Who is this person? Like, this sounds really cool." And then my parents brought me. I mean, they bought me a guitar when I wanted to. I was, I think I was 12, maybe a little bit younger. So I would ask them questions about who, who, who were they listening to and 
also about, I remember a conversation in a car with my dad about Freddie Mercury. It was the first time when I heard Freddie Mercury sing on the car radio and it was the show must go on. And I remember I asked my dad, like, who's this uh, woman and what is this song is about? What is it about? Because it's so sad. And then he explained to me that, that this man has, has a, a disease, an illness that he's going to die from. And this was his last recording. And that's why it's so sad. And we talked about and I said to him, like, wow, his voice is so beautiful. So the music was, it came from interaction with my, with my dad. Did you continue to engage rock over time? Yeah, I continued playing guitar until I was about 16 or 17, uh, folk music. Uh, it changed. I listened to a lot of different kinds of music, also jazz, folk, punk music, all kinds of... I've, I've listened later also to a lot of hip-hop. It, it was I was just always curious about what's going on. And lately, I think, I've been discussing this with my friends, that um, the more commercialized music becomes, the less I've been actively listening to it. But yeah, it's definitely something that, that I that I do, and I, I haven't played guitar in a long time, partly because I haven't had time, or I haven't made time for myself, but it's something that I, I definitely want to continue doing. So your dad had some influence and inspiration for you around your engagement with music? Yeah. What was he like? Um... He's uh, he's somebody who, I think, I mean, I think both of my parents are, one thing that I think about first when I think about them is, is always this, like, eth- ethics. It's like, an, what what I think is one of the most important thing that I learned from them is just, you know, ethics related to social justice and things like that. My dad is, he's, he's really tall and he was very, he he did a lot of stuff around the house. I mean, we grew up on the countryside, so, you know, there was stuff like, you know, chopping wood and things like that, but he would he would um, take me w- with him fishing. We did a lot of things together, and, and my mother as well. I think, like, living on the countryside is something that makes you, um, I mean, if you're not actually living in a farm and you have to work there, but, you know, if you just have it, as, as something that you like doing, it's it's very engaging. There's a lot of opportunities to do stuff together. Yeah. He's also uh, somebody who has, he, he has read a lot of books and he always reads. He's always reading a new book. So he's like a walking encyclopedia. So there's always, if you if you don't know something or if you wonder about something, I, I mean, I can still ask him, you know, about stuff. And I, I think like, one thing that they did really well when I was a kid is that they were always um, uh, involving me in things. Like if if they had guests over and they would have dinner, they would encourage us and, you know, welcome us to the dinner table, even though we were kids. And we would sit there and if we had questions, we were allowed to, you know, participate. And then we would leave and go play or something like that. Did you have exposure to music scenes or music communities in your teenage years? Did you become a part of a community of fans around music? Uh, not, no, not really. I didn't have a band. It was mostly something that I did by myself. Yeah, I was. I mean, when I was sixteen, we had for a while we had a ska band. I, I was, um, I was in high school, and <clears throat> I went to Cambridge Ring, Ring and Latin School because my mom. Um, 
spent one year as a visiting fellow at the Harvard Medical uh, School and Medical Anthropology. So when I went to um, the I went to Cambridge Orange Latin School, which is a, it's a public school, but there's a lot of it's a very international community in Cambridge, in, in Boston. So there, um, I, I had a band for a while. How old were you? I was 16. Mm-hmm. I think actually things got better when we moved. When I was 16, we moved to the U.S. So my high school years in Finland, I mean, it wasn't just it wasn't. I, I was actually lucky to get out of school in one piece and I was fine it wasn't like the bullying it was it was here and there but I also had my own friends good friends I did sports and uh, I mean we we had like teenagers you know you have house parties and stuff so I think I have good memories from high school too but I think things definitely got better once we moved out of Finland and when I was 16 I was exposed to this international community of students at Cambridge Fringe and Latin so yeah, your family moved to the United States. You were 16. You spent a year going to school in Cambridge, yeah. Massachusetts. Yes. Did you go back to Finland? After? Uh, we actually moved to Sweden from there after a year and a half. And there was I was in Gothenburg. And you finished high school in Sweden? Yeah. And where did you go after high school? I went back to Helsinki and then I was working for a couple of years and I applied to the university and then I got accepted to study philosophy. And I did my undergrad in philosophy, and then after that, I applied for the Fulbright, and then I got it, and I came back to the U.S. So my 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 history is very uh, it, it involves a lot of moving from one place to an, to another. How were those years for you, uh, working in Helsinki and then uh, going to school in philosophy? Um, those were definitely. I mean, I I really enjoyed reading philosophy. That was. That was something that was uh, that was really uh, it. It wasn't like a plan, really. I was I was into theater at first and playwriting, but then the more playwrights I kept reading, I noticed that there's a lot of questions related to philosophy. And then I was reading philosophy, and then I was reading, you know, political philosophy too. So um, yeah, those were those were good years. There was some. Um, homophobia in in the university uh, also among other students so there was bullying there too uh, and harassment not physical harassment but verbal harassment um, but the university solved solved that issue and and things were uh, yeah we got better did you start encountering queer community of any sort during those years no no I wasn't uh, I was, I was, um, yes, yeah, a good question. I think I was more actually interested in the anti-globalization movement. What years was this? This was um, around Seattle riots. So ninety nine. Yeah, uh, two thousand until uh, yeah the early two thousand until two thousand and five. Um, I knew this is really interesting now when you ask me that question because gender studies was around. There was queer studies. It was just like I didn't feel like I wanted to. I took a couple of classes, but I didn't want to go there. And something, um, something like that I was thinking about was that I was worried that it's too close to something that I don't want to talk about. I wasn't out, and I had, after those years in in the Finnish high school, I had learned to live 
as a as a woman i was i was trying to do that and it was i mean it was it was going okay so i felt like i must have somehow known that this is something this is a pandora's box that i don't want to open it's really interesting how how you are capable of suppressing something so deep that you just it, i i think it's just really interesting <laughs> like how how does that happen it wasn't until much later that i discovered my transness again when did that happen well well this was uh, when i had already moved to uh to new york city to study and i hope i'm being coherent because there's a lot of moving from one place to another but at some point uh when i was studying in in at the at the new school i i discovered um I think what happened was I went to a gym, just a regular gym to, you know, start doing some exercising and working out. And there was a personal trainer who would start, he started doing these boxing classes for us. And then he did, one time he did sparring uh, and we were allowed to participate. And then I enjoyed that so much that I decided that I want to join a real boxing gym. So I, I joined Mendes Boxing, which is close to Herald Square at first. It's uh, owned, run by Mexican fighters. And then after that, I went to Kingsway Boxing, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. Places have been closed. Uh, I was training with a really wonderful trainer called Daryl Peer. And it was actually at Kingsway Boxing when I was doing shadow boxing. Uh, I was seeing my own figure in the mirror. I was, I was enjoying what I was doing. In those places, you always mix guys and girls. It's like a place where it's, at, at least where I was. I don't know if this is the, you know, I can't say that for every place, but that particular gym and that particular trainer was treating us all the same. You would spar against guys, guys would spar against girls. We would train different things, so different body types, different heights, different sizes would train different skills. And the the language that he used was always very gender neutral. And during the year when I was, I think about a year when I was training, something just started clicking that this is what my body wants to do. And then I was seeing my own self in the mirror every day because we would every day we would shadow box. And then I started looking and I had this weird feeling that there's something very familiar with the mirror image. There's something that's been missing for a long time. And then I started, you know, I was at home and I started thinking that this this is the kid who I was, but the kid has grown up. And I had this really strange feeling that I was thinking that um, the, the child who I was, who I sort of left behind partly when I went to high school, is back. And I haven't seen him in many years, and he's grown up, and he's really tall. And this was the, this was the thoughts that I had in my, in my head. And, and then I was thinking, okay, uh, it felt good. I wasn't freaked out. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I, I continued boxing and then I just started very gently exploring this thing. Like, what is this about? And I think what had happened is that I was sort of old enough. I was 20, no wait, 30. So I felt, you know, more comfortable with exploring what it was. So this was the mid 2000s? This was 2010 and, uh, Oh, no, wait, it was later, 2013, yeah, around 2013. that time. And you were uh, going to the new school in a political yes. politics program. Yeah. Uh, a master's program? I was in the PhD program. PhD. And uh, what, was it, what was New York like for you in general? 
Well, the thing with the New School Politics Department was that there was a lot of uh, international students and there was also a small group of uh, queer students and we had a student conference on queering the queering the university. We we invited Jasper Poir before she was famous, you know. Well, she probably was, but not as famous as now. And Lisa Dogan and Jose Munoz was there. And uh, we had it was really nice just doing that that conference. And during that time, also the marriage equality movement started uh, building up. So there was there was. There was queer students, there was a lot of activism going on. The queer students at the new school were very intersectional and we were discussing different issues related to, uh, you know, racism in the United States and also class, uh, global solidarity. Hierocracy, a group? I'm not actually sure, probably. And ACT UP, some some, uh, members from Visual AIDS was also some people that we hang out with. So New York City at that point, there was a very lively uh, queer and lesbian community run by, uh, well, some of the promoters are Sabrina Haley and Ellie Conant, who unfortunately passed away. But they were doing these these parties because the lesbian community, they didn't have enough money for, you know, their own. There wasn't like a nightclub for that specific, you know, lesbian community or whatever. I mean, there was like places in Brooklyn and of course Stonewall, but there was different kinds of nights. And I think the first party that I went to was at uh, Chelsea Hotel, which is being closed already. That's where, you know, Sid Vicious was doing a horrible, tragic, you know, set of events. But but anyway, that there was an underground sort of community that was also very active. And then there was the university students. So those two what? Tell us about this underground community. What were the names of the parties? What was the years that you know about it? What were the parties like? Um, we didn't really have student queer parties. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of having two hats or playing, you know, there was the nightlife community of queers in New York who weren't in the academia. And then there was then there was the academic group who whom I knew. So it was kind of like... Um, Two very different worlds, but there were questions obviously that that were related. So the 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 party scene wasn't just a party scene; it was a way to get together, you know. And it was also the the marriage equality movement, for example. It wasn't just about getting married; it was about getting access to you know rights in the, within the New York State. I think like I saw a list back then that you would have access to seven hundred different rights if you were married, whereas if you weren't, you wouldn't have those. So there's a book by Nancy Polikoff, I think it's called Beyond Gay and Straight Marriage, which is really good. And she tells about this whole, like, the marriage institution, what it involves in the United States. So for me, uh, coming from Finland, where we have uh, certain uh, rights are guaranteed just by being citizens, I mean, we have, so far, at the moment, it's being unraveled by our new liberal government, but we have public health care and free higher education. So when I learned from these activists what marriage involves, I thought, you know, that's that's the way, that's the reason why they're pushing it. I mean, nobody knew what was going to happen, what a backlash. Maybe some people were expecting it, but, you know, the whole backlash with the conservative movements and, you know, Trump and what's happening in Europe. But anyway, it was it, those things were happening. And I think also because New York City is so international, 
it it gave me a lot of opportunities and possibilities to just sort of free free flow improvise just you know be myself and find a way of expressing who who I felt that I was I still want to hear about these parties what were the names <laughs> of the parties <laughs> the parties well one was choice cunts yeah that was at santos party house then there was snapshot the first one i think was at delancey I remember one night, uh, Queen. You went to a few of those. You went to a few of those. Yeah, Queen Latifah was spinning records one night. Um, then of course Stonewall. There was I for me probably Snapshot and then Choice Guns were those two two that I used to go to just to meet friends. The good thing about Choice Guns was and Snapshot too. It's a lot of times they would have special nights with a theme of sort of involving masquerade like dress parties so you would dress up there was a lady gaga party everybody would dress up as something related to the video or something then yeah um then there was a lot of clubs and special nights that i don't remember anymore what the names were but there was also i mean there were parties where you know gay men uh trans persons uh lesbians and drag queens they would mix so uh, at some point, I think that got a little bit segregated, and it started becoming more like cliquish because every underground community has their own cliques. But they were definitely like the one at Chelsea party, which name I don't remember what it was, but it was definitely mixed. Everybody was there, and it was it was this queer utopia for that one night. <laughs> so this is like 2015. Yeah, 2000. So I think the whole time from 2010 until. 2015 or so yeah and so you're engaging a queer student scene at the new school and these queer parties and within that are you starting to engage or think about trans people yeah yeah i think so (laughs) there was um there was both familiarity and unfamiliarity so on one hand, I did relate to a lot of, uh, you know, the, for example, the, the activism and stuff that, that persons in the lesbian community were doing. But then on the other hand, I also felt that there was something more or that, there, that, that I didn't always feel like it matched. I, I didn't always feel at home. So it was, it was both. It was like familiarity and then distance. And then... Uh, there were, of course, trans men coming to those parties as well, uh, and talking to some of them, and then some some students also at the new school. Uh, so I think like all those things together, it wasn't like I don't have a um, a lot of people have like a coming out story that this was the moment when I you know, but it was more like it was gradually just I was sort of unlearning a lot of heteronormative and gender normative stuff that I had learned and as that became undone something that started sort of like flowing or you know that's that's just how it happened (laughs) and what would you say that the labels or identities that you would have claimed like when you first moved to New York after you'd been here a year two years three years like how would you identify yourself and how did that change over time so like right now or uh, at, when you first moved here and then 
compared yeah. to now? And what were the different identities that you might have been comfortable with at different points? I think like when, when I first moved to the U.S. and I was uh, I started uh, the school, I, I think I was sort of, uh, I think I... I identified myself probably as something like bisexual. But then I thought that that term was insufficient because it didn't really express who I was. I mean, I have a background where I was, uh, when I was a kid, I, I dated a couple of guys for a while. And I mean, that was when I was really young, 14, 15. Uh, but, but that whole identity was, I thought somehow that it was weird to categorize myself that way but I definitely wasn't straight so first I was trying to look for a home within those categories that are constructed to through uh, sexual identities so there are ways of you know identities become identities by by means of what a person feels like as, as their sexual identity but there was still a lot of missing from well what where's gender in this and I think a lot of trans persons that I've heard their stories later or read about it even in history books they struggle with the same thing so a lot of us were either trying to find familiarity and find a home within these categories that were only based on sexuality whereas probably our sexuality was just as you know diverse or you know as our gender i'm not saying that everybody's gender queer i'm just saying that there's there's a lot of uh going back and forth there uh, and then later, gradually, I became to realize that, no, this is not who I am. It's more related to gender, that these, these challenges and these, these um, uh, issues that I've had in my life ha have had to do more with uh, trying to live as the gendered person that I am. And then I was going back to my childhood and my teenage years and trying to think, and it was always, I, I, was, I was still... I was still a boy, a young boy or a young man. But then with that, because I'm a feminist and I read a lot of stuff, of course, in queer feminism, I was also constantly having challenges <laughs> with the whole idea of, okay, so then does that mean uh, a heterosexual white man? Does it mean like whiteness and race? And, and those, those categories also came to play a big role. Yeah, so there, there's, I don't know if there is a term for that, but I mean, now I would call myself a, tra a trans guy. But somehow also queer in a lot of ways. <laughs> I, I didn't, I never lost that queerness in me, but I don't understand. I, I, I don't, myself, I don't uh, understand queerness necessarily as, as related to sexuality. I see it more as a, as a way of living, as a, as a way of... Uh, sometimes just a way of surviving and even though i say that with a huge privilege of being a highly educated white person you know from northern europe still you know survival is some sometimes and trying to avoid violence trying to make yourself intelligible in front of persons who don't recognize you as a human being so that involves struggle and were your studies related what were you studying at the new school and what, what kind of questions were you grappling with and interested in, in your research? Um, I wasn't really um, looking into questions of gender so much, but it was definitely of oppression, violence. I, was, I came to the new school with a dissertation proposal on uh, Hannah Arendt, who's a Jewish 
um, Marxist uh, thinker, leftist thinker, and she wrote this amazing book on totalitarianism. So somehow I was fascinated with the different forms of oppression that crystallized with the totalitarian movements and of course Nazism. So I was I was working with her thinking, but her thinking also has a lot of Foucauldian elements. There's still remnants of Marxism, although she's critical of Marx in sometimes strange ways. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so there, those questions in my in my own work were definitely related to to oppression. All kinds of groups who are oppressed. Do you want to say more about how your research evolved during your time at the New School? Uh, yeah, so I wrote my dissertation. Uh, it's it's called uh, "Superfluous Lives: An Arendtian Critique of Biopolitics." So I was reading a lot of Foucault. I was looking at the ways <coughs> and the structures of power that make certain groups of people or render them as disposable, as inhuman, as something that's not needed, so superfluous in that way. Superfluous labor, super, superfluous human beings. The history of eugenics was playing a part in that because that whole movement has to do with categorizing people and Foucault's biopolitics also, how the control of the body becomes the control of the population, but also forms of resistance. And then when I was reading the origins, I found sections where she talks about the history of uh, discrimination of gays and Jews and the effeminacy, like how feminine men or persons were considered as feminine, how that became a category that had to be, you know, destroyed. And then I found the question of trans history. So it's actually interesting that... uh, my interest in trans history didn't necessarily come from reading books in trans history, but it became it became interesting by finding those things in the history of totalitarianism. Yeah, great. So uh, you're at the new school doing some queer student organizing and uh, going to these parties. Um, and beginning to shift how you're thinking about yourself. Uh, what happened when you finished at the new school? Um, I went back to Finland, like, during my last year or so. I I also have a PhD from gender studies in Finland. That's uh, Feminist Interpretations of Hannah Arendt's Thinking. And it was a project that I was doing because... Um, that was after the new school. Uh, it was actually before. Before. So I came to the new school to just do my dissertation. But because of funding situations, I ended up going back to Finland and teaching and, and doing uh, a whole PhD degree there. Which has been quite heavy, but it's done. Uh, Two so, different PhDs. Yeah, one in gender studies and one in political science. So you you moved into going deeper into these gender questions. Yeah. Yeah. And the dissertation that I wrote in in gender studies in Helsinki, that's actually where I discovered the question that I'm dealing with in in my postdoc research project that I'm doing now. So that has to do with uh, trans history and the history of sterilization legislation and uh, resistance also, I mean, coming from the trans community throughout history to to certain ways of categorizing us. Um, so after graduating, I went 
I went back to Finland. I have a contract now. I I mean, I got a scholarship for four, four years to do the postdoctoral history project, and then one year funding uh, as uh, in in a project. So at the moment, I'm based in Finland and I'm conducting research there, and that has to do with. So I'm looking at medical archives and then also history of activism, and basically it's the from early like 1920s and forward but mostly what i find interesting is around 60s and 70s but there's there's bits and pieces here and there i'm not sort of i'm not making um a very strict timeline for myself because a lot of times when you go into archives you end up reading a lot of stuff and you might find something that you really weren't looking for at all but it was anyway really interesting and that's how i wrote a you know sometimes i've written papers or notes on something that's not directly related but that's what i that's what i did after and did you have did you start to become a part of trans communities when you moved back to helsinki yeah yeah um last year i was two months in sweden doing archival research in sweet in sweden on the, on the history of the trans law uh and when i came back to finland i i knew that i i have sort of a temporary permanent position i mean it's not permanent but at the moment it's at least something that's pretty solid and i wanted to get involved with uh activism and ngos and it wasn't really my intention wasn't really to i didn't it wasn't like i want to be an activist it was more like how can i is there any ways how i could sort of give back something to the community from what i'm finding in these archives and and what i'm finding in my research and is there any way that i could also use the platform that i have because obviously as a scholar i get invited to places to talk i can submit papers sometimes i get them accepted i can go to conferences so um politics or social justice activism isn't always um opposed to theory so yeah, yeah, I'm I'm involved with an NGO back home. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, this is an NGO called uh, Trasec, and so it's basically trans trans rights and trans patient rights, uh, trying also to educate, you know, the wider public about what trans persons are going through, but also about what our what our lives are like. Mostly at the moment, it's focused on trying to bring forth law reform. Um, so at the moment we still have a law where, like I said earlier, I mean it's uh, you need to be going through this process of psychiatric evaluation, which is quite complex. It's heavy. It takes time. It can take time from one year to several years. Uh, you need a medical proof from from a doctor confirming that you are actually trans, and then with those uh, papers you can apply for for access to public health care to transitioning so we're just trying to you know lobby politicians talk to medical professionals i'm quite new in that ngo but yeah they do a they do a lot of work and some of it is visible some of it isn't visible a lot of stuff happens behind the scenes there's a lot of mobilizing you know working and i'm optimistic i mean it will take time but the law reform will come at some point in the United States, there's a lot of debate in trans communities about what kind of um, coalitions to form politically. 
so in a lot of places, trans uh, groups sort of evaluate that they don't have the political leverage to move legislation through, and then they try to figure out how to get uh, gay and lesbian-dominated organizations to prioritize trans issues or to work on trans issues. In other places, trans groups might work with labor unions or HIV organizations. It's a very common coalition. Do you have a sense of how the NGO in Finland you're working with relates to other social movement organizations or advocacy groups? Um, yeah, yeah. You mentioned, for example, I mean, HIV activism is something quite new, but we have uh, cooperation with uh, these these clinics that do anonymous free testing for individuals. So, you know, raising awareness about possible trans clients. Uh, then there's also some of our members are involved with you know feminist politics um we don't get funding you know we're we're from the government so we're we work on a very low like voluntary basis but a lot of us are are engaged with i mean social justice issues in general so it is intersectional um uh, there are big LGBT, I mean, one very big LGBT organization in Finland. So that, that history, I mean, of course, the movements are interlinked. But I think like trans, the trans community has, has um, gained more self-confidence to express the needs that are, that are trans-specific. Because at the moment, for example, access to health care, it's a very complex process. And even just having therapy that's, you know with with persons who actually are trained to to you know give you proper 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 uh, help uh, can be challenging so yeah it's definitely i mean the movement is is working with a lot of different organize organizations yeah but but the front uh or or what we're trying to sort of do at the front line is to articulate trans specific issues and that's something actually that's quite visible uh, yeah and are you a part of a trans, um, like, social networks or community or friendship circles? Like, is there a community dimension to it for you? Um, there is definitely. I mean, there's there's a lot of communities. I mean, different small, you know, I mean, friendship circles and stuff. Finland is a very small country and everybody knows everyone. <laughs> but I just moved back there uh, after being away for so many years. So I'm still sort of trying to find my place. I I haven't been there for very long, so, and and every time when I'm there, I always, quite soon. I mean, previously I've been traveling back to the states. So at the moment, no, I'm not involved so much with, uh, with that. Also, also one thing that I've noticed is that uh, academia, the way it has become, structured, today, it's, it's really time consuming. Like a lot of my time just goes to work, and then you know being with my partner and walking my dog and seeing my you know family members so i i want to do something about that and that's something that i'm thinking about a lot that that i need to take more time to just you know establish friendships and hobbies and things like that it's 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 a lot of work and there's a very strong pressure to publish pressure to do this and that pressure to teach pressure to you know, I think within certain limits there are choices that you can make, but it's it's hard at the moment. But it's it's something that I'm starting to do there. 
Do you have any sense of how either the trans advocacy movement or trans communities differ between Finland and, the, and New York City? Um, one thing that's definitely different is that because New York City is so diverse, there's I mean there's so many different people from all over the world. So obviously there's uh, more. I mean something. I mean anti-racism is definitely a part of of of, of the movement or the trans movement. Uh, but this this like queers for for social justice issues that are related to structural racism and things. That's that's something that's happening there now. But it's been here for many, many years. I mean also because of the history of history of the United States. I mean just the civil rights movement, the history of slavery, the history of colonialism. And this this is an empire, so you know, there's there's different things that have been going on here. But then within within the New York City specifically, I think um I would say that there are similarities, but I think that the work that we do in Finland and what we talk about, a lot of it revolves around the law reform and about the need to get a better healthcare system for both those persons who want to physically transition and those who just want juridical gender confirmation. So here it's different uh, in that sense, I think. Yeah. And also, I think that this is something that I've been thinking about a lot, is that I think that a lot of activist groups in the United States, at one point, they start looking at their history. And obviously, I mean, you know, the Stonewall movement and that whole history, and not only that, but that's that's centered in, in a lot of the history is in New York City. So that's obvious that, that people are looking into it. Also, a lot of the academic trans theorizing is happening in the U.S. Uh, like, you know, Susan Stryker's transgender history, and then Paisley Curra's work, Dean Spade, uh, C. Riley Snorton, there's a, I mean, there's a lot more, Vivian Namaste, all of these classics, you know, are American professors. Vivian's Canadian. Oh, okay, so that's my mistake. <laughs> Thanks for pointing, that's true, that's true, actually, the whole book is written in that, in that, in that community context, but, um, but North American, let's say, but let's put it that way. Indeed. There's a lot of theorizing happening all over the world and also in the Nordic countries. But that's that's something that I I think has um there's one thing, it's it's about translation. It's really interesting how these concepts that are formed in New York in the nineties, like transgender, when that's carried over to a language like Finnish, that's totally different. So we need to sort of work out with the American concepts and that influence and then with some stuff that's coming from our own language. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah, what more would you like to talk about? Um, what would I like to talk about? I think uh, we've talked a lot about a lot of um, things that I, I mean, thanks for asking all these questions. Of course. It's, one way is like the way forward. I think about that a lot. I mean, with us in Finland, it's about the law reform, what happens after that. But I think also in the United States, like where are we going from here? It's not a question that we can answer, but I mean, 
in the U.S., one one issue that we don't have in Finland that's being discussed a lot is the whole prison industrial complex and the mass, you know, detention, incarceration, that whole project, the the situation of, uh, you know, trans persons of color, and uh, I don't know this 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 whole. I think that um, if there's something that I'd like to talk about is this idea that I've been thinking about is that in some sense these struggles are different in different contexts and then there's still a family resemblance between like the way we've been discussing earlier today it's like I learned a lot from what you told me about the history of the trans history oral project and it's within a very specific context like geographical political historical context but there are those those you know elements that are similar within the movement that that we have in Finland and those questions of social justice and this is not definite thing but I think like temporality is something that's very important like in one in one way I think that in Finland a lot of the work that we're doing is like we're sort of we're we're sort of in in many ways or what I'm hearing when I listen to people within the trans community, activists talk, a lot of that has to do with time and temporality. Like how to have a more, um, or, or liberate temporality. Like the medical medicalization and the pathologization of uh, trans persons in, in Finland is, is controlling us through a time frame that's making us go through these processes where we wait and wait for the next paper, for the next approval, or for a lot of people, they don't get the approval for from the doctors, for example. And then there are, you know, the question of sterilization also has to do with time, about futurity. Even if you never thought about wanting to have kids, that's not the point. The point is about the state power to decide over your body. So a lot of that temporality and this whole history project too, it's like everything is happening at the moment. and everybody talks about the trans tipping point but it's like we're doing history right now it's just that we don't know it yet we'll see maybe 10 20 years from now what we were doing but this this question of time is something that i think is really interesting and that that's sort of related to like where where are we going from here i mean of of course we can't know we can only try to do something on a daily basis little by little that sounds like it would be a great book <laughs> Thanks. <On> trans temporality. <laughs> yeah, and the body. You know, the whole like question yeah. of the tr- transitioning. We have different stories about transitioning. As some persons, uh, I mean, transitioning differently for some. It's it's not like an end point. It's like, it's it's moving. It's movement, and I think the the discourse on trans rights versus trans power the, and the social justice aspect of that. Also, the prison industrial industry. Obviously, it's it's not just a it's not just space where the people are not just incarcerated in these places, but their life and their their um, temporality is being controlled through these mechanisms of power. So maybe trans liberation, in some sense, is also a new way of of thinking about temporality as as something that's political. It's not just space; it's also the temporality that's political. Beautifully said. Sounds very philosophical, but yeah, that's what I've been thinking about with this whole, like, the, the, because history makes you think about time. Right. Yeah. Both personal history and collective history. Exactly. Precisely. Because it's the 
persons and their times and very personal stories that are intertwined into this movement that's happening in, in time. And, and we are writing history and doing history as we're, you know, doing this. Very well said for our project. Well, Thanks. thank you so much, Julian. Thank really you so much. I really appreciated talking with you. Yeah, I really appreciate talking to you. And thanks for, for doing the project. I'm very happy to be part of this. We're happy to have you. Thanks.